Hello and welcome to the Nature Connection, Science, Wildlife, and Environment Radio, with your hosts Lisa and Nancy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Fourth Friday Nature Connection. Uh, this is a show we do in collaboration with our friend Margot Carrera, who's an amazing nature photographer. I encourage you to go to her website. If you go to CarreraFineArtGallery.com, you can also find her under Margot Carrera on Etsy. Um, beautiful work um, and in all kinds of uh, beautiful pictures that you can buy. And then also, of course, obviously pictures. She's a photographer, but scarves and all kinds of amazing gifts. So I want to give a shout out to her on that. But um, today we're really excited uh, to be welcoming two guests. Uh, both ladies are ecologists and authors, Adrian Edwards and Rachel Schleiger. They're the authors of the new book that's out through Timber Press, Firescaping Your Home, a manual for readiness in wildfire country. Nancy and I have been through wildfires, and sadly, yeah. as we travel the country full-time on our Love Your Parks tour, we're also dealing with a lot of issues with parks that have been on fire, most recently uh, Sequoia Kings Canyon uh, National Parks and Sequoia National Forest have been ones, and now, like today as we're recording this, uh, Mojave National Preserve is on fire. So, you know, when we think about, oh, firescaping for your home, why why are these two ecologists coming on our show? What does that have to do with nature? A whole bunch. So let's uh, first welcome back Margo. Margo, how are you doing in San Diego? Do you have a beautiful day? It is gorgeous today. And I am really into this talk because I had a similar child um, event where we had to evacuate our home in L.A., when the big, big fire in the 50s was there. And then I recently was in the fire in Napa when Northern California was on fire. So mm. I'm I'm raring to hear what you girls have to say. Yes, ex- yeah. excellent. I, I think we've all been mm. through them then. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I know Rachel has for sure. Um, Rachel Schleiger is a plant ecologist and she specializes in restoration ecology. Uh, definitely she went through the campfire in 2018 and you know, you go through this evacuation and you you mentioned this in, in the book that, you know, you get this guilt afterwards, too. And you can't let go how it just changes your entire life when you go through a wildfire. So welcome, Rachel. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. Yes, the guilt is very, very much real, um, mm-hmm. especially in fires that take pretty much everything from almost every single person. And you feel guilty to have anything mm-hmm. left over. Yeah, I know when Nancy and I went through the fires in up in San Diego on the mountains, seven in a year and a half, major evacuations, friends losing homes. I was photographing their the destruction of the homes for insurance purposes, and it just Mm. was. And we survived; we were okay, and we lost all these bed and breakfasts. It was the bed bed and breakfast capital of California, or at least Southern California, and um, it was so unreal, and it just. Everybody started to look at how they, you know, what plants, I mean, people had vinca and then we're like, oh, we shouldn't be having vinca, but it's such a beautiful purple flower. Um, all these things changed. And as mm-hmm. you know, but um, I also want to bring uh, your co-author, Adrian Edwards, on the show, Dr. Edwards. She's a botanist, a plant ecologist, garden designer, environmental consultant, and a teacher. So welcome, Adrian. How are you? 
I am doing very fine. Um, we are so pleased to be with you today and looking forward to our conversations. Absolutely. So you both lecture and work at uh, California State University in Chico. Is that where you both met? Yes. Oh, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Very cool. Awesome. And I want to go back to you, Rachel, on this. Was it the campfire that led you to go, okay, I got to do more? Um, at that post after something happens, you have to do something. You know, we were <laughs> doing fundraising I, for you. I think it went to what can we do to not, you know, have homes mm. burned down. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually, you know, a, a pretty interesting story. Um, so yes, I went through the campfire. My family and I evacuated. We had to take dirt roads to escape. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was, um, a really, mm-hmm. really interesting experience. Um, and uh, yeah, not anything I would wish on anybody, but nonetheless, I, even before that, my husband works in fire mapping. And right now mm-hmm. he actually has a team who's mapping the Mojave desert fire right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's been working in this world for about 15 years now. And since mm-hmm. he's been working in this world, I, I was noticing, wow, he's gone so much more now and he's gone longer now. And yeah. I just had so many questions because I grew up in California. I grew up in the mountains of California and mm. I've been, you know, preached about fires by every single firefighter that we saw every single year for every single field trip. I feel like we went to the fire station and learned, um, but I had never seen one. I'd never experienced one. And through him, I was experiencing all of this. And I was like, wow, is there something changing? What is going on? And so I started doing research. And I was like, nobody's learning about this. There's so much that there is to know about fire ecology, fire science, fire history in our state, in the Western US, in the US in general and globally. Mm. But nobody's nobody's teaching about this. There's no curriculum mm. for this. So I mm. actually got a bee in my bonnet before the campfire and was like, <laughs> I want to teach a fire science class. And so I got an opportunity through Butte College because I teach teach at CSU Chico and Butte College, our local community college. And they were like, yeah, do it. So I started designing it. And really, it was months later that the campfire happened. And so I'd already been on this journey. And then after the campfire, I was like, I need to get this class in place. I need to do this. Mm -hmm. And so I was working on that. And then I also was trying to think about what to do with my yard. Because although Mm -hmm. our house survived, our yard was completely burnt for mm-hmm. the most part. Um, most of the stuff in our defensive space closest to the house, all those plants pretty much were untouched. Um, but the rest of our two acres completely burned up. Oh, and cool. yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was talking to Adrian about this cause I was like, okay, I'm looking for some information, information about creating safe defensive space, but also about supporting my habitat because I abut pretty much just national forest um, where my property is. And so Mm. I wanted to balance those two things. And I was like, I cannot find any book that talks about both of these things. And the amazing woman that she is, she was like, let's do this. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. And because it's really a big deal when we went through the fires too, you know, they were telling people like, don't put hoses on your roof. That doesn't do anything, but that actually saved a friend's house. And mm. I, I mean, I remember driving up to Julian through Ramona 
and the San Pasqual Valley and seeing like one part where the road, like where the burn was happening on one side and the other side mm-hmm. had all this cactus and it saved that part, you know? So we've, mm-hmm. and I've seen that even on Banner Grade going down from Julian down into Ensbrego. And, and then after the fire though, we saw plants that hadn't, you no one had seen for years, like, I mean, decades. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like this whole other, like, oh, well, this is exciting. But that that's why I want to get to the nature connection part, because it was like, yeah, everyone thinks you should be on our home and garden show, which I, I agree. So we'll put you on that channel too. But um, <laughs> the nature connection part, Adrian, can you fill us in on that part of that real big deal? Because I mean, things are getting hotter too, right? So doesn't climate change have to do with this? And also about not taking care, like habitat. I mean, in in the book, I actually copied and pasted. It says, putting goals for fire readiness and habitat health together. Um, if we don't take care of the habitat, is that part of why we have so many uh, wildfires? And then also, if we're not taking care of the hab- like real natural habitat in our backyards, is that also hurting us with our homes? So much so. Um, and there's so much to unpack there. Sorry. Um, every you well know, <laughs> I get it. There are so I mean, we all live in different kinds of habitats. And the first step really, um, if you're gonna live in the wildland urban interface, uh up in the hills, up in places that abut uh naturalized or natural areas, you need to understand those habitats a little bit better. So there's a lot of stuff in the news about how, oh, we're not thinning our forests enough. We're not you know, we need to, mm-hmm. to slash and burn, but, um, the way that different habitats should be treated differs depending on where you live. In the Mojave, part of the reason that some of those places are burning, um, so extensively is because of invasive species that are sort of growing in the intervening places where there used to be bare ground. Bare ground is not fuel. And so those fires are being carried more easily and they're more destructive than they used to be. And then, of course, you mentioned climate change. Climate change is complicated. It's not just Mm -hmm. a warming planet um, and, you know, warmer temperatures at, during the day and at night, but it's also going to lead to more extensive droughts and uh, more extensive or catastrophic flooding. So um, things are a little topsy turvy, yeah. <laughs> right? Oh. But but you have to start with understanding the wildland environment. And if we all want to move to these beautiful places. The last thing we need to do is is destroy them and punch holes in them like Swiss cheese to make defensible space. And so this was something that really motivated Rachel and I to write this book um, because we're so passionate about wanting to protect the incredible biodiversity that we have here in the Pacific Coast region in Western U.S. Mm. I know, Sushi Cowboy. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I love you pointing out that native species are part of this big solution for our problems now. Because mm-hmm. I always notice when, when while well, we travel full time, so we don't have our own gardens anymore. But when we did, when we used to go to the nurseries, we always noticed that here's your one table of native plants and they all looked all droopy and sick. And then here's these beautiful ornamental plants all over the whole nursery that are in bloom and look really enticing 
And I always wondered, you know, okay, native plants probably don't like to be potted or, you know, nobody really thought much about taking care of them in some of the nurseries, you know? And, and so, you know, I always found like if you bought a native plant, it, it would take two to three weeks before it would resituize itself and, and um, start to grow again uh, a little bit many occur than like some of the ornamentals you know but still you know they're still beautiful and i understand the value of native plants in a landscape absolutely and part of the problem is that the entire greenhouse industry and i actually have years of experience just working in wholesale nurseries um, Mm -hmm. in my in my sorted past right so um, we know how to cultivate um, plants that live in humid environments. And those are the ones that mostly end up in our landscapes. In Southern California, there's probably a little bit more use of succulents than in um, uh, more Northern areas. Um, but for something to be drought tolerant, the best choice you can make is a native plant that evolved with the climate in your region. And so part of the problem with the nursery industry is that there's just not enough production of native plants. We know how to do it now. We know how to grow them now. You just need slightly different soil mixes and um, you need to plant at the proper time. But once those plants are established, they are incredibly drought tolerant and yet they hold moisture in the leaves Mm -hmm. uh, with minimal watering. I wanted to touch on that with getting native plants. One thing, you know, we've noticed too is for getting them, a lot of times botanical gardens will be the ones where you, when they have a plant sale that you can go and get them, um, Mm -hmm. nature centers even, but, um, the, the native plant part of it, it's a lot of the box people buy them in box stores, buy plants. And the box stores thing is, um, really, you've got to be careful and, because if I remember when we lived in the high desert up in, in Mojave in, in uh, 29 Palms, right outside Joshua Tree National Park, mm-hmm. you'd go to a box store and it would say, oh, this is for the desert. Oh, but it actually would work for the low desert that was just 50 miles down the road. Um, but it would not live in the high desert where we were. Palm Springs, sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. High desert, absolutely not. And so they just went like one desert is the desert. And we did shows all with the some- same. <laughs> um, some growers for the major we and we saw the underbelly. Let's just put it that way. That wasn't yeah. that pleasant. And I I really want people to understand the importance of going to local nurseries and supporting them because the big guys are coming after the little guys in that and buy them out, just like what happens to bookstores. And I don't want to get all negative on this stuff, but. <laughs> But there, don't start me. That's a whole other show. But <laughs> that is a whole things. other show. Yes. But you know what yeah. I'm talking about, no, right? I Absolutely. Do. And, yeah. And <laughs> I am, I am guilty of, uh, occasionally buying plants from the big box stores, but at the big mm. box stores, they are actually receiving random shipments that may also yep. include invasive species like press broom or privet because mm. Um, they just say, send us a bucket load of plants that are in season and look good. And that's what the wholesalers send. Right. Them. What exactly. Nancy was saying. Yep. You exactly. Think, oh, this is perfect. And you buy what's in bloom. Not even, not even what's budding. You know, I'm like, always buy if, if the buds are closed yet. They haven't opened, yeah. but, right. but, um, you know, there's the, the small nurseries 
those are people who are working, I mean, blood, sweat, and tears in it, and they have an affinity for the exact environment you're in. They love them. There's demonstration gardens. Um, mm-hmm. There's just so much you can do. Demonstration gardens in communities are, I mean, as we document parks and public lands as we travel the country, Margot sent us on a garden tour. And, you know, it's it's like she's going, we have to now start saving gardens, too. Mm-hmm. And then yes. we realize she's really right. And then it's gone into now we also have to look at demonstration gardens and these little pocket gardens. And, and it's something that ties back to your book and something we talk about on the show all the time is about habitat health and restoration and not having so much concrete, not all the, the rocks and everything people put in their gardens about actually making these gardens flourish with the right habitat so we don't have dead zones. Dead zones are fuel for fire, from what I understand. In your books, you talk about that, where, you know, everybody just starts, let's put gravel down. Nancy's favorite, right? I'm being sarcastic. I know Nancy's going to go off. But if you do all gravel, this heat, I mean, that's what we learned very quickly about the desert. Everybody started graveling everything. You could feel so hot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, damages the soil. And, and yep. if I could, if I could jump in on two things, um, there's so much to talk about here and I'm so excited. But another problem <laughs> with purchasing from, uh, big box stores that are getting these plants from these massive wholesale nurseries is that many of them are treated with systemic pesticides, um, uh-huh. that, so maybe the first year or so that they're blooming, they could contain toxins to pollinators. And as you probably oh. well know, we have a, a pollinator apocalypse right now where mm-hmm. compared to 50 years ago, we've seen up to a 70% reduction in the numbers of some pollinators. And for example, our Western bumblebee used to be Mm. ubiquitous in most of the Western U S and it has now become rare. Wow. So that's another concern. It's sort of a hidden caution, Mm. uh, about where you purchase your plants, you Mm -hmm. know, local nursery growers who are growing natives understand their plants and they usually understand, uh, the pollinators and the interactions that they can provide the services they provide in the environment. One one thing we've seen that's really amazing is going into parks, um, parks and public lands, whether they're state, like small pocket park, uh, pocket parks, sorry, nature centers. Um, they really do teach about native plants and mm-hmm. have demonstrations showing you what you can do. And, and I really encourage people to seek them out. Um, but we're seeing more and more. I mean, we really travel this country and, and I'm not kidding. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of ridiculous <laughs> what we do, but. We, you know, the Midwest, I, I, you know, I always think about what has happened with the Dust Bowl, right? Wasn't that a big lesson for us? And now, you know, of course, then they had mass agriculture, which is just like in the Central Valley of California yes. and, and, um, Southern, like Southeast Arizona, I mean, Southwest Arizona goes through this too. So the, this mass monocrop style agriculture brings in strong pests. And then, of course, here comes the pesticides, right? I mean, I remember driving, you know, from San Diego to Tucson, where we lived at 1.2. Now, that's why we we travel and seeing those crop dusters. And I'm like, are we still doing that? Apparently, we are (laughs) going, holy cow, I wonder why I cough all the time. Um, And so, you know, but going up to the Midwest, 
lately has been one of our favorite things because like Minnesota has uh, created the Monarch Highway. It's right there even on your GPS, Mm. a Monarch Highway. And it is, and when you go to the rest areas all through the Midwest, and it was Missouri, Mm -hmm. I think the first one we saw like this is Missouri, uh, Missouri. Iowa does it, um, Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, excuse me. Um, All of these areas are doing um, these uh, habitat restorations in rest areas with Mm -hmm. actual pollinator gardens at a rest area, right? Mm -hmm. How many people come and go through that? So they show it. And we've seen them in all seasons, like also frozen over in the snow in mm-hmm. Illinois or, you know, but, <laughs> but you see how I, I've got this affinity now for the Midwest. I'm kind of stuck in it because mm-hmm. when you see prairies come back and mm-hmm. prairie grasslands and grasslands mm-hmm. are so crucial. Yeah. There's a moisture that's there that like a, when I think about when the grass gets really dry in the hills of California, like even outside the Bay area, there's just in, in, Central California, you just have these golden hills, which I find beautiful. But at the same time, like in fire season, mm, yummy fuel. Yes. But, but and so it's amazing. Those yeah, golden yeah. hills of California, what mm. you're seeing is mostly non-native annual grasses yeah. that we have yeah. brought in yeah. in the last 400 years. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we have changed the fire ecology just by that one action. Yeah. All the wow. trees are now connected. Yes, but yeah. the oaks. Yeah, you see yeah. the oak, the the standing oak, the live oak, mm-hmm. trying to hang in there. And I think our California mm-hmm. oaks are still in trouble, right? And mm-hmm. and it's here's this grassland, and and it doesn't look normal. I mean, we we lived in Africa, and Nancy, the grasses, the grasslands, mm-hmm. like, it is like prairies. Maybe that's why I'm just attracted to them so much. But that biodiversity but, in a square, like a square of, it's amazing. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, if you think- what's actually really there. I mean, at first look, you know, it's just a bunch of grass. It isn't. You got to get out of the car. Yes. <laughs> well, you got to go know, walk through it. It's beautiful that you're you're focused on what's happening at the ground level because. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've changed the ground level a lot. And of course, agriculture yeah. has disturbed a, a lot and, and, uh, habitat fragmentation is the biggest source of, of, biodiversity loss. But um, what you put on that ground surface is going to have such a Mm -hmm. huge impact on the health of your soil. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And if, if going back to this um, gravel mania where um, to be, excuse me, to be drought tolerant, people were either putting down gravel or AstroTurf those, you know, oh, some gravel is good. <laughs> some gravel as <laughs> accent and to break up fuel loads is great. So is bare ground, but then also having a mix of other sorts of mm-hmm. living uh, and organic mulches can work mm-hmm. as well. But as Rachel yeah. will tell you, and maybe Rachel's really good at uh, talking about defensible space. It really depends on where you put these soil covers or bare mm-hmm. areas. And of course, some areas you should always have a pocket of bare ground somewhere to provide habitat for the organisms that need to, to interface between the soil and um, the above ground area. Oh, so right? would that be mm-hmm. like, would that be like, okay, you need a patch of soil where the water will collect. So butterflies can go puddling. Yeah, that's a good and, example. And, uh, or the yeah. organisms that go below. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a rampant use of these weed barriers, the weed cloth, and 
I just cringe whenever I see that because yes, mm. water will percolate through, but number one, within about three or four years, the weeds just grow on top of the weed barrier. And number mm-hmm. two, you are creating a barrier um, that prevents all of the native bees and other nesting soil nesting insects from going into the soil and yeah. you're reducing the amount of carbon that can go into the soil. You're filtering mm. it. Yeah. 70% mm. of our native bees uh, nest underground. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I didn't wow. know that. Wow. That's interesting. And they're such huh. uh, better huh. pollinators than the European bee or honeybee. Oh. Right. The honeybee is <laughs> livestock, right? And we love the honeybees, but they are not, um, they're not our native bee diversity. <laughs> no, no, we don't count those. Wow. I mean, again, they're great for agriculture and what they do, but a lot of people think that they're native, but they are not uh-huh. native and they're not as effective as native bees. Huh. This is but interesting. That, when- you know, it, nature has it all planned out. Yeah, you know, she we, does. She does. Yeah, and then we come along and we change one tiny thing and think, "Oh, that doesn't matter," mm-hmm. but it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to go to Margot. Uh, how are you feeling about reading the book and uh, having you know Adrian and Rachel here? Because you, I know that you recently you went through some fires. You, you know, you've been through them. Yeah. But you recently moved back to San Diego, and then you have to kind of you know set up home and everything. Do do you kind of Look at what their book is since, you know, you're a homeowner and we're, we're floating the country, but we do pets it as we travel. That's part of how we'd be able to do mm-hmm. these podcasts and do our work. Mm-hmm. So we're taking care of people's gardens across the country, which is also very yeah. fascinating. That's and, it's um, very interesting. But, but it's interesting because we meet people who are really trying to do that. Like where we are right now, the lady is from California and run three acres in Arkansas and the Boston mountains, as we keep saying, and, oh. and she's done restorative work and, works with the land and there's so many bugs here that I'm, I'm so fascinated. I'm going to have to do like an Instagram reel of bugs, but, um, but Marco, for you going in and seeing the book and being a homeowner, is it changing you about like what you want to do with your home? Cause I know you're always worth working with nature. And when we talk about getting down with nature, Margo knows about that as a photographer too. Yeah. Um, it's interesting also about the fire, uh, barriers and, um, I, I said I was up in Northern California where they had their big fires in 2017, 20 through 2019. And then we moved back to California, but up there, uh, what I noticed happening and we aren't doing it down here in San Diego is in the foothills where the grasslands were around the oak trees up there. Um, they would bring in cattle. And, uh, or they would bring in goats and they would have Oof. the cattle and the goats, um, uh, actually mm. all around the houses. In fact, I had cows right behind my house and they would eat the grass up. And so that would keep that grass from, um, being so overgrown and, and fueling the fires if they should come closer to the homes. And this was in a close community that I was in. Um, and the whole community would have, would hire out, um, the farmers and they would have the animals come in. And, and, hmm. um, so there's a na- na- natural way if the habitat is not, uh, chased away, which the 
more we grow our home, you know, spread out with our homes, we kind of chase the habitat away where they naturally like the deer would, would eat the grasslands in here in California or, or moose, mm. moose uh, actually lived in California. And, and um, mm. so I noticed that, and I think that's one way we could keep the grasses down. Um, but here in San Diego, oh my gosh, I can't, cannot stand <laughs> the rocks. Every oh. home around us is uh, <laughs> full of rock gardens and, yeah. and they're taking out, um, the land and covering it up with, with rock. And I am finding here for the first time in my entire life that I rarely can see birds. So oh, birds, whoa. birds eat, um, worms right mm-hmm. they they go into the grasslands and they pull out the worms they pull out the grubs they eat the grubs and um bird seeds not enough for them you know that it's just not their natural yeah. diet they they take out of the earth um their food and so i'm not seeing very many birds around here and oh. i love 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 birds so mm. i i am changing the habitat to have spaces for the butterflies to get the water and I put in the the um uh what do you call it uh, milkweed <laughs> and I, I, my my backyard this summer is full of of uh butterflies oh, and, cool. and, and full of, cool. yeah so um and uh, the milkweed uh, plants itself every time it, the wind blows. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we know why it's called a weed. Uh, so mm-hmm. I ended up with two plants and now I have about 10. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I leave them and they're sparsed out and, and they're beautiful when they bloom. They're mm. ter- terrible when they've been eaten up by the butterflies. But <laughs> I think but, they're beautiful. Yeah, I, wanted, I wanted to go to Ra- Rachel on that with in regards to the, you know, the space and and what you were saying about the goats and cattle, because I'm fascinated about this. I know, yeah. you know, I've heard a lot of success, but uh, I wonder if Rachel can um, hone in on that about the spaces, because, you know, the cattle part, I'm I'm concerned about personally, because I know our national forests do it and, and things like that. But I wonder, because they're not necessarily native, are, are they harming the soil? But I think when the companies do it, maybe they're rotating it better I don't know but Rachel do you have anything to say on that part yeah actually um so thank you for (laughs) for asking um I was like kind of like waiting for an in um first (laughs) you have to jump in here there's like there's five women on one show (laughs) which is absolutely which is absolutely fantastic um you know we're powerful women here today Mm -hmm. um so first of all I just like to like note that Number one, in the West, fires are a natural disturbance. Mm -hmm. And Lisa actually talked about this earlier, you know, that, um, you know, she saw fire. And then after the fire, there was this bloom in diversity. And this is because fire is the main way that these landscapes evolved over Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands, if not millions and millions of years. So when Europeans came here, they pretty much stopped the presses on fires. They're like, we don't want this. We want forests to be as thick as possible so we can sell them. And anybody who's lighting fires, like our amazing indigenous communities, 
that they have been using to shape the landscape and use to um, support their communities, their tribes. Um, we stopped them from doing that too. So we stopped about 200 years ago, Europeans um, stopped this process of fire from naturally occurring. So over 200 mm-hmm. years of us suppressing fires, so much has happened in our wild landscapes that have made forests thicker. But thicker is not better. Um, it actually drains more water. All these trees, they're more sickly because they're closer together. They're not as healthy. They're more prone to diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing massive die-offs um, because of drought as well. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of stress going on in these areas. Um, so right now, we're in a really complex situation. We need fires to kind of come back in areas that they can come back, right? Are not our communities, but in our wildlands to Mm -hmm. clear things out, to make things healthy again, to get rid of pests. But it's so thick right now that it's really hard to do that safely. So what we need to do, and this is kind of what Margo was talking about, is come up with alternatives to being Mm -hmm. the fire. We need to play the role of what fire would be doing in our habitats that we love so much. And Adrian said earlier that every habitat is different. So we need to Mm -hmm. know, so like where I am, I'm in an area that would burn on a cycle five to 10 years. There would be fires that would come through, get rid of kind of the stuff on the bottom, the duff, some branches, maybe some baby trees, and it would clear it out. But in Chaparral, it is a completely different ballgame. In every habitat, it's a ballgame. So it's, it's knowing the habitat so you know what it needs, what it needs from what the fire would be doing in that habitat. Um, so we can keep those habitats as healthy as possible and where we can bring in fire. Um, and obviously this has to be done safely, but there are um, a huge increase in what are called um, fire or prescribed fire associations. We have one here in Butte County. There's one in Humboldt. There are increasing. So what these are, are basically communities of people that say, I have a, I have a big property. I need to maintain it. I need to keep it safe, but I also want to support the habitat. I want to mm-hmm. burn it. I want to burn it. And I want to do that to help maintain it. So I'm not having to rake <laughs> hundreds of acres, which is impossible. Mm-hmm. So um, there are these fire burn associations that you can be a part of where they can schedule a time to basically come to your property and burn. Obviously, this is something that's wow. coming um, and is new and mm-hmm. only certain people can do it. But um, again, Margo came up with a, a great thing that has been happening, which is bringing in big herds of critters to do this. And so, um, Lisa, you were concerned about cows. Yes, I am definitely concerned about cows as well. They are, number one, picky with what they eat. And number two, they're humongous creatures. <laughs> um, they're not light on their toes. Um, no. So goats are what is happening up here in Northern California more so than anything. Um, there's tons of different people. I actually know of two different people um, that have basically they rent their goats out. 
they put up little fences and they'll um, set them up for a certain amount. Can you send them over now? Because yeah. I like to play with goats and do <laughs> yeah. goat yoga. I'm just yes. kidding. Awesome. You know, yes. I mean, come when so he doesn't cool. want to play goat. Goats are the yes. best. All right. They're sorry. I didn't mean cool. to interrupt, but no, no, you know, no. when Mar- Margo was saying goats and now you said goats and I'm like, I want to play with goats. I love they, goats. They'll eat anything. They'll eat poison oak. They'll eat blackberry. They'll, they'll eat anything. And that ah, is, that is the but problem. Hold on, Rachel. Hold on. Uh oh. Uh oh. You have Remember, to keep them away from things. Yeah, um, but one problem with goats is with Himalayan blackberry. This is a good example of an invasive species. We all love blackberry, but they're very, very invasive mm, all over on yes. every continent they occur. The goats will eat the leaves off of them and leave the canes mm, or the, the uh, stems. Mm-hmm. And then they just get fertilized and re-sprout. Um, even better. Yeah. So the Karu, Karu oh. tribe up in um, Northern California and Oregon, Washington areas have been, um, uh, they might bring in goats or they might burn, but they've also been taking bulldozers to pull out Himalayan blackberry. Wow. Anything that mm. it, when they're really thick and then they wow. restore that habitat. I know that there are people doing restoration with um, along riparian corridors in the southeast, mm-hmm. where they will mm-hmm. dig out what they can, where it resprouts, they actually have to cut the stems and paint them with a little bit of herbicide yeah. just on the stem. So, mm. you know, er- having herbivores in the, the landscape is another option. Fire is an option. Fire will not destroy some invasive species like blackberry either. And so we have to use a multitude of yes. different tools and then collect data to see what the responses are. Now, cattle are just, you know, they, they're heavy and all, but so are moose, right? So disturbances like hoof, um, what they do with their feet, (laughs) their hooves Mm. and feet, um, are, are big, but disturbance is not always a bad thing. So again, um, it's really, really important for people to get out there and make observations about how the landscape is changing or not. Um, and for different areas, yes. like you were talking about each place being very uniquely different. And I think that's really, it's like a, a general garden. You have microclimates within mm. your own garden, your own backyard. Yes. And so yes. that's something so important to look at. And I think what it's interesting because I think when what Margo was talking about too, with these companies coming in, these, I've, I've listened to interviews with the goat people and I'm like, I want to come hang out with goat you. For, can I be a goat? Yeah. I want to be a goat that person goat for person. a day. Um, it's one of, yeah, but I think it is interesting because I, I'm like, what about the cattle? But then maybe they're not there, you know, so much that they're creating too much of a disturbance if they balance it out correctly. And I think the people doing it probably know that terrain. Maybe I don't know. Just have those conversations. And like you're saying, get that data in. But everything is different. And like the blackberry thing is, is crushing because I do love blackberries, but mm. we, Nancy and I were just talking to friends going up the coast. Um, they're going to do a California road trip and we're like, you've got to go to Gold's mm. Bluff Beach. Gold's and, Bluff and, Beach. and, um, mm-hmm. I, Margo, you remember when we had saved the Redwoods leak on the show, Sam, um, us talking about this where we went down a dirt road. Um, it's, it, it's an oh, auric. Cool. California up in the redwoods. Oh yes. And you go down mm. this dirt road that winds and winds through the redwoods oh, with cool. ferns. I mean, you're like in Jurassic Park. You get mm. to the beach 
And there's the coast, right? There's this beautiful beach, but it's not, you know, we're not talking San Diego kind of style. Like we're like on the redwood side. It's a little bit rugged and it's gorgeous. And there were elk eating blackberries on the beach. And I'm like, I'm not leaving here. (laughs) Nancy's like, we're not leaving. We ended up in a very weird motel that had AstroTurf in the rooms. Every every time we opened the door, Cheryl Pats would run in the room and be like, oh, All right. So we shared our sandwiches with them. You know, we're like, whatever. We're hanging out with cats. And and that motel has since gone because we drove through there, um, February uh, last year. But, um, but we loved that. That was just like one of those crazy road trip stories. Right. But, Mm. but I didn't know these blackberries because you Mm. see them like you're talking about in the Southeast. Now that I think about it, Mm -hmm. I've seen them in wildlife refuges all Mm -hmm. over. They're yeah, all over. Like now, there, we do have native species, but they're not mm-hmm. aggressive the way that the, it's called Himalayan blackberry. Mm-hmm. And they really truly are invasive on every continent except maybe Antarctica. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. we could just harvest them and make a bunch of wine. But, yes. Blackberry well, wine. Yeah, there you go. But the thing is, you know, the, the consumption of water by specific plants makes a huge difference. And so when, when we're looking at the climate change, which um, happens sometimes naturally, but mostly not, um, we have planted plants that use more water in an area than that area can sustain, you know. And so we're killing off the natives by lack of water because the, the non-natives, for some reason, are way more aggressive. And they take more water and they take more nutrients out of the soil. And so it really is important to really understand native plants versus non-native. That is really, really true because Mm -hmm. the, um, and many of our invasive species are really good at acquiring and sort of, um, preempting the nutrients and water earlier in the season than the natives. And so uh, yellow star thistle would be a good example of that mm. as an invasive species that really changes the nutrient and water dynamics um, in, with at a site. So yeah, and mm. um, something uh, that Adrian reminded me of is that the Karuk tribe has actually been doing a lot of prescribed burns. And what mm. they've actually found um, in a couple of cases is areas where the th- forest was very thick, not necessarily thick with invasives that I'm aware of. They, I didn't see the full report, but it very, very thick forests um, due to, you know, a lot of fire suppression um, that their rivers have been getting higher. They, they have more water available to them because the, all of these plants that were very, very thick aren't there anymore. Um, and obviously, mm. you know, you know, being able to play that role is really important of getting rid of, you know, the high, high densities of plants. And that's kind of like the point I was making with the goats earlier is sometimes you have a huge amount uh, to, to digest, like on, for example, if you have like 100 acres, how do you and you can't burn it? What are you supposed to do? You can't just go in and, you know, uh, you know, handpick everything. So goats are a really good starting point. If you need a place to start to kind of get things rolling. And, um, and then from there, if you have plants of concern, like blackberry, like very specific um, species of broom that mm-hmm. will come mm-hmm. back no matter what you do, and you have to dig it up, 
um, just like Blackberry. So you need mm-hmm. to know what species you have so you can cater your plans around them. Um, but, you know, you sometimes you, you do need to pick things to kind of get yourself started. Um, and I know so many people that have, you know, a good amount of land and they're like, I don't know how to begin doing this um, to make it fire safe. But like Adrian said, you need a multitude of tools. You need to be able to go and know your land, know what species you have that are native or that are already and there. And that's fun. Bases are there. Yeah, it's a fun thing to do. And it's like you live there because you mm-hmm. love it. So go out and explore, learn about your land. Get the kids involved, get Get yes. iNaturalist. Get the Seek app. I'm sorry. I'm so addicted. No, to it. yes. It's so crazy. Fun. Mm-hmm. So when you do that, go and know, and then you start learning about what they need. I, you have all those different tools. We went to Buenos Aires National Wildlife Refuges in Southern Arizona, just south of Tucson, and it's on the Mexico border. And it has, I mean, I can't believe it. It's a huge, huge acreage, right? But it's on the border. So they were bringing back short grass prairie because the pronghorn lived there and they were bringing back the pronghorn and also Ooh. the quail, the Bob White quail, Nancy, is there? I think it's Bob White. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say the politician name, but you know, anyway, there's a quail. <laughs> um, and we don't want to talk about politicians who killed them and got, I don't know. Anyway, we will, we'll just leave that alone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it is funny if you're going to go hand hunting and then you get shot in oh, the face. Yeah. I'm like, anyway, sorry. Oh. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. No, I did not say that. I didn't say it. I did. Oh, boy. But anyway, the quail are cool. So they had to re like look at this habitat. But they have in the same refuge, just up the road, a mountain setting with bear. And this is where mm-hmm. jaguars do cross over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um this cool. is part of that area. And um, you know, I think El Jefe went through there, you know, he's not there with us anymore. But and then you go in the other area and it's wetlands in Arizona and Arizona has some amazing wetlands. And um, so, I mean, the biodiversity here was insane, but it was an old ranch. Cattle, speaking of cattle, Marco, you got us on the cattle thing now, um, <laughs> but it was this cattle ranch and they took it over. And of course, the community, when they first took it over, got pissy because, oh, it's our ranching community, but they're like, your water's going down. So they go in and they've, and we've, we talked with both uh, superintendents over the years, and I know they have someone new, but they do all these prescribed burns at certain times in certain places. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. Josh Smith, who is a pollinator expert, who was one of the refuge superintendents we went out with quite a few times. We went out in different seasons. We had a really mm-hmm. good monsoon season one year, summer monsoon season. And then he's like, it's time to burn. I'm like, but it looks so pretty. Mm-hmm. Burn. They burned. <laughs> And mm-hmm. the next few months later, we came back. He took us around. And I couldn't believe it. The water, there was this area that was for the cattle, right? There was water. Agiri Lake actually came in. It filled up. And it didn't even make sense. One area where they weren't burning, they were losing water. But you could see that there was ranching going on around. But this area where they were restoring and burning, the water came back. And so he's going, this is some interesting stuff to look at. Then he took mm-hmm. us out to where they had burned and mu- and then came back and he showed us what is known as Forbes. And now when I'm going places mm-hmm. like Nancy, will go, what are these flowers? I'll look at them. I'm like, they're Forbes. That means it's healthy. He goes, if you have mm-hmm. Forbes, you're healthy. And there are all kinds of little Forbes flowers. I got addicted to it. And so I'd go out and photograph. And if you, when, and this is what he said would happen. When I'm going out photographing these flowers, 
I would find, and even you didn't even see them until you bring it up close on your computer screen Mm. and zoom in. There would be maybe 10 bug species on one poppy flower, for example. Now, Mm -hmm. you know the size of a poppy flower. 10 species of bugs right there. Worms, Mm -hmm. spiders, little thingies that I have no idea. I don't want them on me, but I'm like, this is some cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And he was like, that is healthy. That's what we want. It's, It's Horton. Here's a who. There's mm-hmm. a little, yes. little world <laughs> in that flower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. amazing. I, it was one of the most interesting things to follow and see it actually work because we always look about management and humans getting involved, but like you're saying, all the tools. <clears throat> and I wonder about the water re- being retained there than on the other side of the refuge because that's where they were mm. doing the burning. I wonder about that. Yeah. Now, thinking yeah. about what you've written your book and you got your girls have put the tools in there, but I wonder if that can help retain water by just letting the actual natural ecosystem come back. Well, and you know, the idea of gravel and cement, how can it not heat up the ground below and kill things underneath that, that are supposed to be there? Yeah, well, mm-hmm. gravel is a, a, I mean, underneath gravel, the soil can stay cooler. Mm-hmm. However, you don't have all those little plant air conditioner swamp coolers going. So you don't have transpiration. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there, we totally need to rethink and redesign the way we have built environments today because it is going to get hotter when it's hot mm-hmm. and we need to create more oases, if you will, of little mm. plant air conditioners everywhere. Yes. Ooh. A mm-hmm. lot of, um, there's a lot of European influences in our gardening styles here. Mm. And it's like, well, this is not the UK. I would love yeah, for right. it to rain more here, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, this is not the UK. We uh, have a completely different environment. We can't mm-hmm. have the same type of garden. We can't mm-hmm. have yeah. the same type of plants um, and Adrian and I are big advocates of getting rid of people's lawns, a hundred percent. Yay, tear them up. <laughs> hey, there's places hey. in Minnesota where the towns are paying people to tear up their lawns and put in wildflowers. Yeah, some and California plants. communities are doing the same. I'm very happy really? to see that. Yeah, yeah. Margo, what's, what's your? They're I want to know boring. if Margo has a lawn. Do you have a lawn, Margo? Oh, okay. Uh-oh. So when I moved in, I had a front yard and a backyard mm. lawn. We. Mm. Um, we took out the backyard and we're about ready to take out the front yard. Uh, So what do you recommend? Um, We put in the front yard in San Diego. Um, Mm. All my neighbors have gravel. (laughs) Oh oh my gosh. You need to break up because that becomes a dead zone again. And and remember my no birds either. (laughs) What do you recommend based on your research? Uh, absolutely natives and i would start with with thinking about where to put your trees so i know in socal there's um only a a few native tree species that might be appropriate but you can think about the mature size start with those with respect to your defensive space zones so within the first five feet of course nothing um combustible. And then uh, in the next, you know, five to 30 feet, if you're in a regular fire risk zone, um, put in sort of islands of 
uh, starting with the trees, and then you can have in those islands um, additional herbaceous forbs and grasses, sedges. Um, you mm. can create, um, have some sort of trickle of water that comes on maybe with a timer so that at a certain time of the day, birds and butterflies and other mm. insects can drink. That would be a start. Yeah. That, in, ooh, awesome. in San Diego, I mean, there's so many options and, and it's funny, you know, we, um, or I should say Adrian, because Adrian is, you know, the amazing, um, botanist in our, in our duo together. Um, she put together plant lists that, yeah. you know, ha- like almost a hundred pages of plants in, in wow. this book. And it's amazing. It, it is. is amazing. And so, um, it's so much to sort through and, and, and that's not even all, um, in California alone, there's thousands of native species and obviously mm. not every of those species is going to work, um, in every place. Um, but in San Diego, it's a really great spot to have so many amazing options, um, and so honestly, like, it's hard to be like, plant this because, you know, <laughs> there's so many options and, you know, go have fun with it. Go like Lisa, you know, said, go to one of those really native botanical gardens that sells mm-hmm. plants and just experience it. Like, go take notes, be like, oh, I like this one. I like this one. Like, you know, have fun with it. Go see mm-hmm. what you like. Yeah. yeah. And then there's, there's also the testing of soil because um, depending on what what home you move into and what was done before you got there, especially if it's a brand new house, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff in the soil that doesn't belong. Well, and, so and my, go ahead. Oh yeah. And uh, you have to take into account if it used to be mm-hmm. ag fields, for example, that might have too many nutrients for native plants in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. I know this oh, is a big problem. And really? whenever they wow. do restorations, sometimes they will add a bunch mm-hmm. of, um, chopped up wood to help deplete the nutrients or they might try and grow some some annual crops with no fertilizer for a few years just to kind of calm the soil down and start building more carbon back into the soil more organic matter back into the soil so again every place is different in desert environments you know i know uh we've been poo-pooing gravel a little bit because of the overuse (laughs) of rocks but Rocks can make a very fine uh, localized mulch and habitat for reptiles and such. Um, That's true too. In if they're mm-hmm. used strategically, so right, yeah, like I islands, have a like you said, rock like islands, the islands. For yeah, the islands in my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I want to go back to the water feature. We mm-hmm. we um, sat for a lady who had, um, and she, I mean, this was magical. She was, it was all natural. There, there was not going to be, you know, I mean, everything was allowed. I mean, we even had to take care of Stumpy, the raccoon and feed the (laughs) raccoon and the chipmunks. I mean, it was, this was, everything was natural, very much like where we are now. It's amazing, right? When you watch nature actually be allowed to be and you're a part of it, it is the most exciting. I'm, I want to come help Margo. I'm, I, you know, Margo, we're coming through California soon. I'm coming. To, I'll come dig whatever you need to dig. I'll dig. Well, I'll do whatever you need me us. to do. I, I'm going to come dig in your garden. I'll help plant. I'll do whatever. Like, really, mm-hmm. I love it because you see all these little creatures. And when you have good soil and you see worms and stuff, this lady had put in, um, the, taken over the big piece of, I mean, huge, huge tract of land in the middle of Iowa 
or agriculture. And she had let things go to nature, like let nature be tons of milkweed, right? We were surrounded by milkweed and native natives that have, you know, from there, it was like an untouched piece of land. Mm. And she put in this water feature, the pond, and boy, if the pond didn't work, she's like, I don't care what's going on, that pond will work mm-hmm. while she was gone. And we had people come out and then we figured it out, electricity was, she was like, that pond must go, I don't care what, I don't care about this, that or the other, this mm-hmm. pond will work. And she was so right. And you're right about this, because the moving water was so key to these birds and for butterflies and dragonflies, we couldn't mm-hmm. keep up with the species. We saw rose-breasted grosbeak for the first time. Wow. Orioles, Orioles, like you wouldn't believe. Wow. I mean, blue jays, cardinals. I mean, mm-hmm. Nancy and I could barely do our work. We're like, look, 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 <laughs> go look here, go look there. And we're like, stop it, stop it, go look. And what was interesting is she did have bird feeders, but she also had so much native abundance mm. that it didn't matter really. It was yeah. the water that they wanted and they wanted mm-hmm. the moving water and yeah. you could see them. You could see goldfinches, Nancy's That's favorite. So cool. But mm-hmm. like you could see them going and getting the bird seed from the meadows. And I mean, honestly, yeah. when it, it's exciting when you see people do make, when they make these transitions, like what Marco is doing, I'm yes. excited for you, Marco. Yes. I really if you am. add yeah. those, if you add those components to where you live, you do not need bird feeders. I have found here in Northern mm. California that, um, it was, I, I moved from Illinois to Northern California eight, uh, 17 years ago. And I found that having a bird feeder here was pointless because there's just so much to eat. But if you don't have the water, you're not going to have as many birds. Mm. The yeah. other yeah. problem that's just heartbreaking to me is that this year I live in a very small, on a very small lot. Um, and uh, it was such a good rain year that I had quail nesting in my little tiny front oh, yard. Oh, I had cool. other bird nests and they were, they were decimated by oh. cats. Mm-hmm. The, the cats attacked yep. the nest and picked off the baby birds and they didn't even eat the birds. The birds actually dehydrated and starved to death. So it's really important to get the message across that when we have these built environments and create habitat for all of these natives and all the natural wildlife, you, it, it would be um, minimally <laughs> nice if cat owners could keep their cats inside from dusk until dawn, which is when they really want to hunt. The cats can't help mm. it. That's in their nature. Yeah. Um, but if you can just not let them outside during the peak yeah sort of hunting hours, it could and actually and help promote. Yes. Well, spay and, and spay and neuter. Amen There's and hallelujah. There's a lot of uh, amazing programs where I'm at where, you know, they'll be like, is there, a, is there any like random cats in your yard? Let us know. We'll come trap them. We'll spay and neuter, give them shots. And even if they can't mm. find them a home, you know, uh, they will just kind of let them be again, let them go, but they'll be spay and neutered. So not adding to the population. Mm-hmm. And I also want to add something to what Lisa said earlier, because um, that actually reminded me of a really um, amazing tip, because even in, you know, in small yards, like what Adrian was describing, you can have, you know, little places like little oases for animals. Um, so you can kind of like, um, like I have a galvanized 
um, bucket, like a big one. And I set it into the soil and I filled it with water and I filled it with rocks. So any small critter, a bee, a lizard, a bird can access it and get out of it whenever they need to. And we keep it filled all, all summer, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a, a wildlife camera on our, oh, on cool. this little, <laughs> on our little cool. bucket and it gets used intensely in the summertime mm-hmm. by Not everything. Bad. Um, every animal, um, foxes, deer, <gasps> turkeys, bears, oh, lizards. No every, way. Every sized critter. And how do you ever have, get to work? Um, I would be there. It's very, I mean, difficult. that's the, I yes. know, but that's the thing. Yeah. Like Margo, Margo starting like this new project, Margo, like mm. we, we have to like do something on the show with this. We want step <laughs> by step, like, because yes. even you planting milkweed, I think milkweed is so beautiful and it comes in so many varieties. Like when we lived in Tucson and we would go hiking, well, hiking, we, we walked, we lived in, you know, Tucson and then we were on the road. We've been on the road for 10 years and, and stopped for two years to, to redo our websites and everything. But we didn't know about pet sitting. We do this, by the way, give a shout out to trusted house sitters. It's not about making money. It's this amazing trade and immersion um, this immersive experience with people that you're taking care of their garden. They're teaching us stuff. We're teaching them stuff. They're traveling. We're hanging out with animals. It's the coolest thing on the planet. Uh, yeah. But it really I is. I'm ready to change I, jobs. I know. <laughs> I know. Because we're seeing animals. Like here I see deer in the morning and everything. But oh, it's so cool. Going, going through these changes and watching and and going through step-by-step change, it's very exciting to start to like if you've got kids get them involved in the project because phones can be used we learned that wasn't that margo when when we did the interview with asbury woods up in erie pennsylvania we went there and i said to the lady well isn't this cool about your you know what all these programs you have for kids and they do roof gardens by the way that's another cool thing if you have the climate for it dude like i want to be on the roof (laughs) i want a webcam there but and i said well don't kids you know their phones she goes you can't take the phones away. It's not going to happen. We, and that mm-hmm. she introduced us to seek and I naturalist. Mm-hmm. And now I'm addicted. I mean, it is so exciting to go start a new project, see what is there, what is thriving. Cause don't you think that's part of it too, Margo? Don't you have to look at what is working? Not just take out the lawn, but is there stuff that's already working that you yeah. can see? Well, when we moved in, it was a sad story because they hadn't been taking care of the soil. So, even what was planted wasn't growing very well. And we've been here three years and we've been uh, putting uh, amendment to the soil and, and uh, changing the soil. And now, now everything's blooming and it's, it's beautiful and it's uh, lush and it's alive. So I can't go from, you know, what was there before. Um, but maybe I can tell you about some plants that may have been roots that didn't grow before but are growing now uh beautiful flowers uh lilies um that start to bloom and i didn't wow, even know that i didn't even know they were there and they're all over the yard so yeah. they just weren't um the soil wasn't abundant enough when we came but we amended it and it's starting to come back well i think oh, milkweed does it yeah going back to the milkweed that i was i was on that tribe and then i lost my i got excited Okay. <laughs> I'm excited, but the milkweed, 
<laughs> in Tucson, in Tucson, I was like, what is this vine I'm seeing growing out in the, you know, we lived in this apartment for this two years while we were doing everything and would hike in the four in the morning in the summer. And you would still see snakes out hunting. Um, mm. It was cool. And owls and every, I mean, it was four in the morning. You'd see the sunrise. It was like this spiritual walk we would do every morning, Nancy and I. And no matter what, whether you wanted to get up or not, it was like, we got to do it. Cause once you're out, you're like, Oh my God, look at this. The choy is blooming. The bees are in the choy of flowers. Mm-hmm. The, like mm-hmm. you would see everybody wake up and the birds do their thing. And it's like, no one's here. Yeah. Cool. But there was this vine growing. I'm like, what is this vine? It almost looked like a choya crossed with a passion fruit. Turned out it was a milkweed vine. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even know. And then I started getting into milkweeds and going, there's milkweeds for everybody. It's not the same typical one. It's everywhere. Like we can, I mean, uh, Rachel, uh, you know, Adrian, um, I mean, milkweed, milkweeds are fine, right? Because when you go to a I'm so confused now. And I, I don't think I'm the only one. Like you go to a nursery, it's butterfly, bush, good, bad. What, mm-hmm. what is good? What's bad? What should Adrian we be doing? actually has some really, um, really great advice on milkweeds. So I w- I'm going to turn that to her. Yeah. About. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's actually been, um, there are, there are milkweed researchers. I actually did some milkweed research myself for my master's degree and, um, Milkweeds, the reason that they are so intimately tied to monarch butterflies is because the caterpillars, um, when they eat the milkweed leaves, sequester these cardiac glycosides, these poisons, basically, that the milkweeds oh. produce to try and reduce things uh, from delivery. eating them. Yeah. And so there are the mm. any herbivore that you find on a milkweed is pretty specialized to be able to detoxify the toxin. And, but monarchs actually store that toxin to make themselves, uh, less vulnerable to eat, being eaten by birds. So wow. if a bird eats a monarch caterpillar, they'll throw up, for example. So, mm-hmm. but different species of milkweeds mm-hmm. and even different individuals vary in how much of that toxin they produce. So there's a species here in the West, uh, Asclepia speciosa which is a very showy, commonly propagated milkweed species that isn't so great for the monarch because it produces such high levels of the toxin. Now, this Mm. is a little bit controversial, but um, the narrow leaf milkweed, which is a little weedier, is actually a much better uh, plant for the monarchs because it doesn't quite produce such high levels of toxins. Mm. On the other hand, there is a species of milkweed from the tropics that's been in the trade a lot. Um, gosh, Asclepius curasavica. I can't remember the common wow. name. How do you a- even pronounce this? I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, it's like oh, every name in the planet, but you listen to you. I'm like, that's like music, man. Keep well, going. I can't remember the common name of it, but it's a tropical milkweed. Tropical and milkweed. so a lot of people yeah. grow it as an annual and it turns out it's not so good for monarchs either because it doesn't produce much toxin and it actually can kind of mess with their um, reproductive cycles, especially in warmer climates. Um, So, you know, it's good to, to, again, plant your native species and have more than one kind of milkweed Mm -hmm. uh, in your yard, but don't forget about all the other butterflies. So you mentioned butterfly bush which of course yeah. isn't a milkweed and there is controversy about, well, 
Is it a good plant or a bad plant? It depends on where you are. So I have one in my yard that was not planted by me. And it does get a lot of visitation by butterflies. But if I lived in a place, say, in the coast range or in a wetter climate or near a creek, I would not want to grow butterfly bush because it can spread. Where I live, it doesn't spread and it's fairly well behaved. So I leave it there. Oh, I looked up your tropical uh, milkweed. I'm glad you explained that on the butterfly bush. The, the, yes. it's, so it's like the butterfly milkweed flower. And then they're, they're saying on like Mexican butterfly weed. And I've seen it all yes. through the Midwest. And I thought it was the most prettiest thing. And I got excited. And then I yeah. found out it's not even really milkweed 100%. Very showy. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's very, well, of course, then there's the butterfly the um the very common one that's orange um butterfly yeah, weed or I've got that's, that that's all over the Midwest as well. But I've seen this one. It looks yeah, and it's a, a tropical it is a it is a non-native milkweed. So it is a milkweed, but a non correct Asclepius Curasavica. See, that's why I don't <laughs> yeah, that that stuff, right? You did a great job. You did a great job. I had fun doing it. You know, it sounds like a good thing, but that's mm-hmm. interesting what you're talking about. One thing in your book, you also put in creosote bush, which was interesting to me because yeah. in Julian, when all the fires happened, um, mm-hmm. they, Ooh, they came around and said everybody had vinca and that turns into oil. Like that helps burn your house by mm-hmm. having the vinca because people literally had lawns of vinca and one house yeah. we lived in was like that. And so I started going, Ooh, and then creosote which I believe uh, you you both are better plant people than me by far um, is one of the most ancient plants we have. The native Americans used Mm -hmm. to drink creosote tea Mm -hmm. and there's circles of them up in Lucerne Valley, up in the uh, Mojave forest. And that's when you get into the Mojave area and and you will see them. So I'm really also sad about the fire right now. Mm -hmm. It's a creosote, but then I always thought creosote, would be more of an oil burning, maybe scary thing to have in your garden. So Absolutely. But if you but. have enough space <laughs> and can plant it in sort of an isolated island um, away from, you know, away from your home and keep it clean. In other words, keep it yeah. pruned, kind of sculpt it by pruning it and making sure there's no dead stuff around it. It will be just fine. Um, but you don't want it right up next to your house. Creosote bush okay. is a wonderful native plant for all sorts of organisms, supports all mm. sorts of I love um, creosote. And it smells when it rains. It smells like pee. Oh, I know. Yeah. Sorry, it's yeah, true. It does. True. It smells it does. I think it's that's, nice. that's a really important point that Adrian made. You know, there's a lot of native plants that are, you know, in the big no-no list, you know, in terms of like their potential flammability. Um, but especially if it's like a shrub or a tree that's in the no-no list, like for example, where I am, everybody's like, get rid of your pines, get rid of your manzanitas. Oh. Um, oh. You know, the manzanita? Uh, oh my yes. gosh. Um, <gasps> and it's, it's interesting to me because um, it's, well, pines are, can be sappy and sappy can basically allow the the fire to get up into the tree very quickly, um, oh. Oh. which I get. <laughs> and then um, with manzanita, it burns high hot it takes a yeah, lot of heat to true. actually light on fire mm-hmm. like a lot of heat it's that's like what happened those... in julian manzanita was mm-hmm. like manzanita yeah, was bad yeah, yeah but um if if you love a certain plant and you really want it in your yard um 
plant it as far away from the house as you possibly can. And like Adrian said, create space, give it lots of space, give it lots of mm-hmm. love. And there are ways to mitigate um, certain keeping certain plants in your yard um, and be as safe as you possibly can. So it's just about knowing as much as you can. And if you that, evacuate, yeah. pull it out. <laughs> evacuate, pull it out and take it with you. You know, it's funny. We, well, we've done so many evacuations when um, the one fire happened and, and oh, it was gosh. the very first big wildfire. And it was from the DEA clipping down a power line after somebody growing some pot. Oh. And I'm like, okay, here we go. But anyway, so part of like the, I can't explain where it was. You have to look at, and that's a whole other thing in the mountains, man. It's, it, you have no idea if the fire is really in your backyard or not because it moves and it's yeah. weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so Banner Grade at the beginning of Banner Grade, which is this mountain pass that goes down to the desert and it's beautiful. So this, uh, it burned and it even had yuccas and it was like that high deserty, but not Mojave desert, right? And mm-hmm. there was this wisteria that was growing there. And I know, and they had like wild lilacs because lilacs, people grew, grow lilacs all throughout Julian, daffodils, all of that. But they had wild lilacs and the wild lilacs came back the next year. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, this wisteria came back. I remember driving up from going down to Borrego and we're all so depressed, right? And I drove up and I saw this wisteria came back and I was like, Son of a gun. That's not what I said, but you know what I mean? And <laughs> I was like, I, I almost like literally tears because it was still there. I know it's not supposed to be there, but the resiliency and you guys talk about resilience mm-hmm. in your book made me cry about this wisteria. And I remember coming to Nancy. Remember? I was like, there was this beacon on this mountain pass right before you got into the mountains. And I don't know, but it came back. And that area beautiful plant. was the one that we really learned about fire. Mm-hmm. Go afterwards. You're going to see, I mean, we had Cuyamaca Forest with all the azaleas. Oh, and gosh. we were actually on a hike before we really had to evacuate all the way to Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And we and that is where it burned. And we came out of that hike. And Nancy and I saw this fire. And I'm like, oh, we're, we're, oh. this is the one. <laughs> and it was the one that cedar fire um made history at that time you you win with a campfire um (laughs) i wish i didn't but you know i know i know i'm not kidding i know it's not funny it sucks it's no but it's important and and no matter what going through a fire is going through a fire and Mm, you know we need to give any fire prone community as many tools as they possibly can have to Mm -hmm. build you know, um, really um, strategic um, plans for the community, for Mm -hmm. families, for their properties, you know, and that's really what our book is all about is Mm -hmm. creating, you know, dialogue, um, allowing people to get to know where they live more and, you know, Mm -hmm. support habitat, support wildlife. We want to see these critters. We moved here for these critters. So we need to support. Well, thank you for your book. Um, I think you've got so much um, information. It's, it's one of, it's a Bible for anybody living in the West, but honestly, I think it's, you know, maybe not the plant list will be the same for the East, but things are happening. I mean, look at what's going on in Canada, you know? So, um, I'm just saying Mm -hmm. you've got some very solid advice for everywhere. Um, and then look at the plant list according to where you are. 
Um, but it's also just, you know, I want to look at the plants, but you make us really think. And, and I think going, going, yeah, the concepts and going through this mm-hmm. makes you really look at where you are and have some value and kind of comes back to, you know, don't go through a fire and then get the book, get it mm-hmm. now, you know, cause things are changing. Yeah, um, do you have websites, either one of you, that people can follow you on or We are working social on media? a website right now. Mm. Um, so hope, right now we have it. So if you have the link, you can view the website, but I'm trying to work on the techie side and get it available so you can just. Okay. So what's it. the link? So people can, <laughs> what, what's the website link? Do you know? Uh, I don't have it right now. Okay. It's- yeah. We'll, we'll get it afterwards. We'll get it afterwards, um, for everyone, but everybody's yes. available everywhere through Timber Press. Go get it. It is a beautiful book. Well done. And we're um, on as Instagram as well. Um, oh, what Instagram? Firescaping the Wooey. The Wooey? Uh, mm-hmm. Wildlife Urban Interface. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I, I know we get woo woo here on the show too. Ooh. We get excited and, you know, oh, fiery, movies. but I, I'm like, woo. I wouldn't be W-U-I. saying that all day. I know. Yeah. That was the book. I kept saying, I'm, what is wooey? <laughs> wooey, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm in a wooey. I'm, that's it. That's my yeah, new thing there. for the rest of the day. Wooey. <laughs> Firm of the day. Wooey. Yeah. I love it. Ladies, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for joining mm-hmm. us. It's been more than a pleasure. Um, everyone, we are here every fourth Friday with Margo, uh, on our Nature Connection show. So keep up with us at bigblendradio.com. Of course, Carrera Fine Art Gallery.com as well. You can find Margo Carrera's work on Etsy as well. And, um, mm-hmm. we've got, we're going to be talking more plants, uh, next month as well. And, um, keep up with us at blendradioandtv.com. We have our Nature Connection section there too and you will also find uh this interview coming up in um our big weekly blend magazine and other ones as well thank you so much ladies everyone take care let's go let's go to the garden yeah Mm -hmm. let's go thank you for your great work yes thank you so Mm -hmm. much for having us